We're making our way through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. This morning, uh, we'll be in chapter 4 again. After Cain killed his brother Abel and showed no sign of remorse or repentance, God cursed Cain from the earth and in the earth. He was cursed from the earth in that the land would no longer yield unto him a bountiful harvest ever again. And he was cursed in the earth in that he would be a wanderer throughout his life. And last week we studied Cain's lineage and we observed the downward spiral of a genealogy which refuses to walk with God. Cain had a son named Enoch, which means dedicated or initiation training, uh, that sort of idea. Cain here is beginning, initiating, he's, he's developing a whole new way of life. He begins to build a city. He dedicates it to his son. Uh, he names it after him. But this would be a whole new way of life, a life without God. He built a city in an attempt to put down roots. But God said, you're going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. And so he's still rebelling against God. I'm sure it didn't work. I'm sure he eventually moved on because of God's curse. Enoch had a son named Erad. I like to say Irad because it looks like Iran. (laughs) Which means a fugitive. More literally, it means he was a wild man. Irad had a son named Mahuyael, which means smitten of God. Mehuyael had a son named Methusael, which likely means, where is God? And, and the idea is, we all die, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Where's God? Methusael had a son named Lamech, and that means lowly or humiliating. This whole line was sinking lower. It was becoming more humiliating as it went on. And remember that Lamech had the first record of polygamy. He married Ada and Zillah. Ada means an ornament. Zillah means a shadow. And we talked about this is why you can't have two love interests in your life. One will, either, one will be an ornament. The other will end up somewhere in the shadows. And then Lamech, he brags about killing uh, these two men. I believe it's two men. Some see one. But he, he says... That if Cain were going to be avenged sevenfold, then surely Lamech would be avenged 77 times. And so he brags about his killing someone. And and we took note of what we're seeing in Cain's line is, is a breakdown of the family. Which leads to a breakdown in society. And we're seeing that violence is now being glorified in the earth. Well, Lamech has Jabal and Jubal. Sounds like somebody from the hills. He had them through Ada. He has Tubal Cain through Zillah. Jabal invented the nomadic lifestyle, always on the run. He became an independent producer of cattle. And so this is showing us now, I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I'm just going to keep moving. Jubal invented stringed and wind instruments. Now people could be entertained. They are now taking their mind off of uh, life and, and, and being entertained to keep them away from God. 
Tubal-Cain was skilled in metalwork. And the idea here, if you look at it in the Hebrew, is he's sharpening. He's making weapons here. And now position can be established in the earth. People could be dominated and controlled. Tubal-Cain, he had a sister named Naamah, which means pleasantness or pleasurable. Uh, she's beautiful, in other words. She's the only one specifically mentioned in this line as a daughter. In fact, really the only daughter specifically mentioned. I mean, we know Zillah and Ada had to be the daughter of somebody. And obviously they had more children than what's listed here. But I think this is important about Naamah being last because we're going to see when we get to Genesis chapter 6 that the sons of God are going to look upon the outward beauty of the daughters of men and they're going to take them wives of all which they choose. And this is going to cause a lot of problems in the earth. So I think it's important that this is mentioned here. Don't just overlook Naamah. Now, I said last week, there's nothing wrong with advancements as long as they're being used for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with beautiful women. Say amen right there. Amen. <laughs> That's for you, should. But, but <laughs> well, you know, at least some of you love your wife. The rest of you just a bunch of whatever. So there, there's nothing wrong with those things. But, but what we see here, this is a case of them uh, going on without God, and actually replacing God. They're keeping their minds off of God. Through the Canaanite line, we see absolutely no consciousness of God whatsoever, and they essentially have become humanist. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. And I mentioned the days of Noah last week in relation to the day in which we live like them, we have become so technologically advanced as a society that we are forsaking God. We are now seeing the breakdown of the family. We are now seeing violence glorified in our land. And as Peter said, destruction is on the way. The first time it was destroyed by water, the second time around God's going to destroy this earth by fire. And I finished last week with the question, are you ready to meet God. Are you ready for that day of judgment to come? Or have you become so wrapped up in your stuff that you have no time for God? Well, last week, I, I didn't mention this yet because I want to say just a little bit more. Forgive me. Last week, I spent really a lot of time on where Cain got his wife. Remember that? Sarah, are we really revisiting this? Just, just hang tight, okay? I didn't want to devote the entire message last week to Cain's wife because uh, there's really no challenge in that. You know, what am I supposed to say? All right, now don't go marry your sister. You, you know, I just, there's not really a challenge there. So I wanted to end with a challenge, but I, I want to just, I want to tell you why I spent time on that um, last week. In verse 17, we see Cain got his wife. And for many of you, if you've been in church like this for any length of time, this is a non-issue, right? We just accept it. He married a relative. And that's just the way it is. I talked about it last week. I'm not going to rehash it. But I, I want to quickly share with you why I spent as much time on that as I did before we move on. From July 10th through July 21st, 1925, a very important trial took place in our nation in a small town of Dayton, Tennessee. It was held in the open air, and it was a case of whether or not evolution should be taught in our public schools. And it was a landmark case in many ways. It's known as the Scopes Trial. Have you heard of that? Sometimes it's known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. 
That's how I often hear it referred to. The case centered around John T. Scopes, a high school teacher accused of teaching human evolution in a state-funded school, which at the time was illegal. Can you imagine that? The whole trial, it really ended up, it really was just a staged publicity event. Scopes ended up saying, I don't even know if I really did do that, but he self-incriminated himself in order for there to be a trial so that there could get public recognition about this uh, going on in Tennessee. So it was all staged. Guess who was behind it? The ACLU. (gasps) Right, oh my goodness. The the ACLU um, was brought in to defend Scopes the teaching of evolution by a lawyer named Clarence Darrow. On the other side, there was a a man, he was really famous at the time in in those days. His name was William Jennings Bryan. On the seventh day of the trial, Bryan was called to testify. It was really unusual that that happened. The the lawyer called the lawyer and had him come up to testify. Listen, the transcript's out there. It's a fascinating read. I'm going to read the whole thing. I got sucked into this thing. And, and you can read the entire seven days of the trial. It, you know, if you want to fall asleep at night, just... You know. um, and so Brian is called to the stand, and the, the issue of where Cain got his wife became a national issue in this country. Many questions about Genesis were being asked, but Darrow eventually got around to asking Brian, did you ever discover where Cain got his wife? Brian replied, no, sir, I leave the agnostics to hunt for her. And then there was this following exchange. And I'll start with Darrow. You've never found out? I've never tried to find. You've never tried to find? No. The Bible says he got one, doesn't it? Were there other people on the earth at this time? I cannot say. You cannot say? Did that ever enter your consideration? Never bothered me. There were no others recorded, but Cain got a wife. That is what the Bible says. That's, that's Brian there. Darrow says, where she came from, you do not know? And that was the end of that line of questioning. But that line of questioning isn't hard to answer. That's not hard to answer. Bible believers ought to be able to answer that. I mentioned that last week. You wouldn't think it would have that line of questioning, you know, then there's a lot of questions, but you wouldn't think that something like that would lead this country into teaching evolution over creation. But it did. And, And the whole intent of the trial was to make a mockery of Bible believers. And it worked, just as Satan had planned. And there was a a very telling moment on that day, the seventh day of the trial, that Brian and Dara had this interaction. And and it it really emphasized what this whole thing was about. And and it it got heated. Eventually the judge had to say, that's it, we're done for the day. But but the the, the prosecutor, I believe his name was Stewart, a, a prosecutor objected and asked, what is the purpose of this examination? Brian stated, the purpose is to cast ridicule on everybody who believes the Bible. To which Darrow shot back, don't miss this. We have the purpose of preventing bigots and ignoramuses from controlling the education of the United States. Now that's how we're viewed. That's how we're viewed by the world. You bunch of ignoramuses. 
you bunch of narrow-minded bigots. How could you believe the Word of God? You can't even tell me where Cain got his wife. When Brian couldn't answer easy questions from Genesis, it cast doubt upon the Word of God. I would venture to say no other book is under attack in our Bible like Genesis. It's the first book we come to and yet we don't even know it. Long story short, you can see the aftermath of that trial. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man. That asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So that was a very critical time in our nation's history. It's one worth your study. I made reference to it years ago when I was going through a series on the Word of God. And I talked about when did Americans start to view Christians as dunces? It was that point. Now, it was already happening. It was building. There's a lot of things that led to it, but that was the manifestation of it. That's why I spend so much time answering that question. Enough of that. Amen? As we closed last week, I only touched on the last two verses of chapter 4. I want us to visit this again before we move on to chapter 5. But if I remember correctly, we'll just be in these two verses today. Look at the end of chapter 4. It says in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos, or Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. This chapter began with Adam and Eve having Cain. It ends with them having Seth. This is not a chronological flow here in this chapter. Seth was not born after six generations of Cain, but all indications are are likely Seth was born shortly after, a year or two after Abel was killed because Eve considers him a replacement seed. We don't know that for sure. But the way this chapter begins and the way it ends, it's actually a style of writing. And it's called an inclusio literary device. I'm so proud of this. Enjoy this. It works like brackets or bookends. And it's meant to alert us to an important thought. They're throughout your Bible. They're meant to tell us what's in between these two bookends, how it relates to the bookends. And so what we see here... In, in this inclusio, get used to it. I'm going to say as often as I can, amen. I learned a new word. We're, we're going to roll with it. Um, we are being alerted to a contrast that is taking place between Cain's lineage and Seth's lineage. As I mentioned in verse 1, there are several times when the Bible gives a name, it defines the name in that verse. We see that here in verse 25 as well. Seth's name means appointed. And we read that Eve said, For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. We've talked about how in verse 1 it appears as though Eve may have had an eye to the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 when she said of Cain, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And if that was her intent, she obviously was sorely displeased. She was wrong. And here we discover she gets it right. And it's interesting how she she sees things now. 
Cain means gotten, as in a possession, while Abel means vanity or emptiness. But really that was backwards of the truth. She said Cain was from the Lord, but she says nothing of the sort about Abel. Come to find out, Cain was not a godly seed, but he was a vain, empty, and ungodly man who ended up being of the seed of the devil. He was of his father the devil who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. On the other hand, Abel was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He had a heart for God. He was full of God, even though he was named emptiness. And when Seth arrives, she doesn't see Seth in the place of Cain. But she sees Seth in the place of Abel. You might be thinking, well, duh, Abel you know, was the one that was killed. Yeah, but she really lost both sons. She obviously lost Abel, but she lost Cain. He's a wanderer now. He's out there. And if she originally viewed Cain as the promised seed, or at least the one who would bring in the promised seed down the line, then one would think she would have viewed Seth as a replacement to Cain. But she turns her attention to Abel. It's no longer about Cain being the one. And I think there may be an important distinction here. Or maybe I'm just looking into things too much. But she sees and understands the need to have another seed in the place of Abel. She realizes that if any of the two were going to be the promised seed, it would have been Abel and not Cain. And we find through sinful circumstances, there is still a desire here by Adam and Eve for righteousness. There's still hope of Genesis 3.15 being fulfilled. The great promise of God that He would bruise Satan's head. Psalm 37.28 says, For the Lord loveth judgment, and forsaketh not His saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. So God has brought judgment upon Cain. His seed shall be cut off, but God's always going to have a remnant upon this earth. He's always going to have His saints who are preserved. And, and Seth was appointed in the place of Abel. And, and the picture here is, is they're still looking for God. They still believe His promise. They're not losing hope. It's almost as if, as if Eve has grown in the Lord and she now sees things more clearly than she did at the birth of Cain many years beforehand. And, and I would tell you, this is how we tend to be in our Christian life. Early on in our zeal, we think we know all the answers and we have everything figured out. This is the one. This is the promise seed right here. This is Cain. And we, and we think we have all the, all the answers. But come to find out years later, we realize we didn't know near as much as we thought we did. And the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. But as we grow in wisdom, we begin to see things as God sees them. He gets a hold of our heart. We start getting in His will. His will starts becoming our will. And Luke 19 is the account of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus gets right with the Lord. Jesus says to him, This day is salvation come to this house. And when He said that, the Bible says the people heard this. Jesus had to speak a parable unto them. Why? Because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. They were trying to get ahead of the Lord's timing. It's going to happen again with the disciples just a little bit later on before Jesus ascends in Acts 1.6. Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And Eve said of Cain, I've gotten a man from the Lord. But it wasn't to be Cain. And it wasn't to be Abel. It wasn't time. But the promise would be fulfilled through Seth. 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us that the Lord seeth not as a man sees. And Isaiah 55, 9 tells us that God's ways and His thoughts are higher than ours. So I want to tell you right here, don't get ahead of God's timing. Wait for Him to make it clear. Wait for Him to move. Now before we move on to verse 26, I want to emphasize, don't think that God is on plan B here. It wasn't like, oh no, Abel got killed, i got to think of something. I better open the womb of Eve and let's have another son here. God's not on plan B. God's never on plan B. God knows exactly what He's doing. He's just so far ahead of Satan. He always is. And this is significant because remember that the real battle here is that Satan's trying to take out the promise seed. He wants that line cut off because God said it's going to crush his head. Abel's been murdered. Cain goes on and lives in rebellion. So Satan might have thought he's wiped out the messianic line in the death of Abel and that humanism is now going to spread throughout the earth and engulf mankind through the Cainite line. But hey, God intervenes. Whoop! God was not done. But God was on the right track with His plans and purposes. But God's grace is manifested in the midst of sin. And and what we're meant to see is the but God. It looked like all hope was lost. But God. One of these days I'm going to preach a sermon series when God butts in. But God. What are we going to do now? Don't worry, God's got it under control. It looks like all hope is lost, but God. The Bible says in Romans 5, 7 through 8, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Right? Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God raised Him from the dead. But God be thanked. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. But God gave the increase. But God is faithful. But God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. But God who has also given unto us His Holy Spirit. Where would we be today if it wasn't for God? I can tell you where you'd be. You'd be on your way to a devil's hell. But God. Lord have mercy, but God passed by my way. June the 26th, 1990, Jekyll Island, Georgia. And this old boy sure didn't deserve it, amen. But God came by. But God said, I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus. But God, and listen, I want to tell you today, because of God, I have salvation. Because God saved my wretched soul. He's full of mercy. He's gracious and long-suffering and compassionate. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? Why would God be so good? But God was and God is. We saw last week how humanity dips into the gutter without God. But we finish here on the mountaintop because God is good. 
God says, I'll reach down lower than you can go. Maybe you're a Seth in your family this morning. Anybody here got a dysfunctional family? Maybe you're a Seth. God may be using you to be the one in that family that is calling upon the name of the Lord. In a family surrounded by sinners. Hey, did you know God doesn't need perfect circumstances in order to work? In fact, He specializes in taking that which looks hopeless and turning it for His glory. God can work in imperfect situations. God is the God of new beginnings. And we see that here in the line of Seth. Now, what what is it that we're meant to pick up on here? Why these two bookends? Why this inclusio? Why these bookends about Cain's godless lineage? Or in between there, we have God's, Cain's godless lineage. Why? Why? What are we meant to see? Well, verse 26, look at what it says, and we'll see what the Lord has for us here. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. We know from Genesis 5-6 that Enos was born when Seth was 105 years old. (laughs) That's probably like 15 in their their age, amen. Um, and, And we're meant to see a contrast between the lineage of Cain and Seth. Seth names his son Enos. It is a generic name for all of mankind. It means mortal. And it means mortal in that we are weak and frail. We're helpless. But where's the contrast? Because Cain's line was not looking too swoof. Giving birth to a son and naming him mortal and weak doesn't sound very promising. Well, you have to get the contrast here. Cain's line recognized mortality, just like Seth's did. Methuyael means smitten of God. They're mortal, they're going to die. And it's likely that that meant they were trying to blot out the existence of God in in their world. They recognized their, their morality, and they wanted to rid themselves of God. That's the Cainite line. And then... There was Methusael, which is man is mortal. Where is God? In other words, what does it pay to serve God? So both here are recognizing their mortality. Cain's line, I want you to get this now. Cain's line looked at their mortality and decided, what's the point of God? Seth's line looked at their mortality and decided, we need God. Do you see the contrast? They had a dependence on God in their mortal state, while Cain's line had no dependence on God. Through Seth, man in his weakness looks up to God for strength, realizing that they are helpless, and they call upon the name of the Lord. Now we know in time there's going to be a blending of these two. No doubt there there would be some portions of Cain's line that would go on to know the Lord. No doubt there would be some in Seth's line that would go on to reject God. 
So how do you know that? Because by the time we get to Noah, there's only one man left that's perfect in his generations. That's Noah. So eventually there's, there's going to be a blending here. I don't want to overemphasize this, but we, we see that Cain forsook God, Seth received God. Now, you might ask, didn't people call upon the name of the Lord before this point? I don't know, I'd imagine they did. But this is drawing attention to a marked distinction between the children of God and the children of this world. This is a delineation between the seed of God and the seed of the devil. Seth's line is going to extend all the way to Noah, who will be the one that finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is the one who was a just man and perfect in his generations and walked with God. Genesis 6-9. God would use Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and their wives to replenish the earth and the line of Seth would continue. Say, how far would it continue? All the way to Christ. The promised seed of Genesis 3-15. Luke chapter 3 gives the lineage of Jesus. And it concludes in verse 38 where we... where we read of Jesus, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Hallelujah. God kept His promise of Genesis 3.15. Man's failures cannot frustrate God's plans. God kept the line intact through Seth. And I want to tell you, you can always trust God's promises. Now, in in closing, what I want you to see here is that this is all about identity. The whole family line of Cain mentioned is, is identified by their arrogance, their pride, their violence, their vengeance, their sexual corruption... They're living independent of God. They're being entertained, producing weapons, obtaining riches. But from Seth would come a line of people who were not identified as cattle producers, though I'm sure they did. They were not known as music entertainers, though I'm sure they did. They were not known as weapons makers, though I'm sure they did. But I want you to get this. These things were not their identity. Rather, they were known as the ones who call upon the name of the Lord. And and listen, this is where fulfillment is found in this life. Don't try to find your fulfillment and your identity from the world. Maybe you raise cattle. Maybe you play an instrument. Maybe you're making weapons. Listen, you might have a career, but don't allow that to become your identity. You ask a Marine, what do you do? I'm a Marine. You ask an Airman, what do you do? I'm a meteorologist. Even when typing these notes, I capitalized Marine and I capitalized Airman. And I got an error message for Airman and not Marine. Because even Word knows... A marine's a marine and an airman's just whatever they are. So the world asks you questions. What do you do for a living? Nothing wrong with the question. Amen. I like to know what people do. But, you know, a lot of times in the world's eyes, they're seeing how how can they classify you? How do you classify yourself? How are we to be known when asked? Hey, we are of those 
who call upon the name of the Lord. I'm a child of God. I identify with Christ. I belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm a Christian. Whoop. Above all else, that's what I identify as. Hey, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. No, no, no. I'm a child of God. I call upon the name of the Lord. You say, man, they're going to think I'm weird. Yep. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So the way of Seth is not what you do, like it is with Cain. But the way of Seth is, who do you serve? What you do for a living, that's just simply a means to an end. You're just putting food on the table. Amen. What you do is not important with eternity in view. I mean, there are some things, I suppose, but and there are some things you shouldn't do. Amen. But I'm not going to stand before God and Him be, man, you did 21 years as a meteorologist. Enter thou into the joys of the Lord. That's impressive. You, you served your nation for 20 years. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Brooks. Those things don't impress God in that sense. It's not about what you do for a living, but it's whether or not you have life. You say, what is life? It's knowing God. John 17, 3, Brother Long. This is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You say, what, what is eternal life? That's where it's defined, John 17, 3. Yeah, that's it. Ask somebody, do you have eternal life? Yeah, I'm going to heaven. No, 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 do you have eternal life? Yeah. Do you know God? Yeah. Our salvation is found in Christ. I'm talking about our identity, our, our forgiveness is found in Christ. Our identity is found in Christ. Our significance is found in Christ. Our life is found in Christ. Our peace is is found in Christ. Our joy is found in Christ. Our hope is found in Christ. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Are you in that blessed company today? Are you calling upon the Lord? If you're not, Romans 10, 13 tells us, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And listen, you can trust His promises. If you're not in Christ, call upon the name of the Lord. He said, I'll save you. Maybe you're in Christ, but you're losing your identity. You're too wrapped up in the world. Too concerned about worldly things. You're identified as a cattle producer, a weapons maker, an entertainer. How are you identified by the world? You need to get that right today. Draw near to Him once again. Boldly proclaim to all those around you, I am a child of God. I am of those who call upon the name of the Lord. We don't need more silent Christianity. That has done nothing very much. We need those who will open their mouths. Why? It holds you accountable. Let's pray.